Good morning and welcome to the Coffee and Cap Rates podcast, your go-to source for New York City's latest commercial real estate insights. This program is brought to you by Ariel Property Advisors. I'm going to jump into our panel discussion and ask my partners and colleagues to show themselves and we are going to introduce them one by one. So the first one is my partner, Victor Sozio, who is leading many of our bigger transactions, and we'll talk about that in a second. My partner, Mike Tortorici, who is involved in many interesting transactions, and we'll talk about the sellers that he's in and talking about, as well as several nonprofits that he's working with. Our senior director, Sean Kelly, who is prolific in Brooklyn, and specifically also in development sites, and we'll talk to him about that. And our director, Max Wordlow, director in our capital services group, who is going to tell us more about financing and about capital mortgages and equity. Let's start with Vic. Vic, you have led several large transactions for the company in the past few months, and you've done also tremendous job in the affordable housing world. Tell us a little bit more about what you're seeing today in that world. Good morning, Shimon, and good morning, everybody. I guess let's talk a little bit about multifamily. And I think if you look at the data, the multifamily data for the first half of the year, it starts to give you a picture of a city that's slowly coming out of a pandemic and still adjusting to the HSDPA legislation uh, of 2019. You know, it's clear that the second quarter, you touched on it in the presentation, it's clear that the second quarter was a lot more active than the first or the other quarters in 2019. 20, and it makes a lot of sense because rents have come back in a real way to pre-pandemic levels in some cases and locations even exceeding pre-pandemic levels, which is surprising that it came back so quickly. The dollar volume for the second quarter on multifamily was about a billion and a quarter, which is not quite where it was in a let's quote unquote normal year, let's say or normal quarter in in the past, but it's getting there. And to put that in perspective, it tended to average around two to three billion dollars a quarter in a more normal quarter in 2016 to 2018. 2015 was, you know, five billion dollars a quarter essentially at the peak. What's interesting is that, you know, and, and you touched on this, you know, I know that the average cap rates have ticked up overall, but if you really see what's out there, quality assets haven't dropped off a cliff, you know, much, right? Quality assets in Manhattan still trading around the four cap. Quality assets in Bronx, broke most parts of Brooklyn and, and Queens still tend to go between five and a six cap. So I think that that is a little bit skewed by a smaller sample size. And you touched on that earlier. Within the multifamily sector, the market for affordable housing has exploded, right? And it's performing above and, and beyond expectations at this point. And part of what's fueling that, again, you touched on this in the presentation, is that when you have an opportunity that is large enough that can attract institutional equity, and there's just a lot of capital for it, right? And this is institutional equity that is essentially willing to accept returns between 10 to 12% if it meets their impact investment needs, their mission-driven capital, ESG capital, right? And at CRA, if it's a CRA eligible location, that, that goes a long way as well. There's CRA and PR needs that, that it serves as well. And what you're seeing is that the operators there are incentivized by the large fees that are associated with these transactions, but also the fact that they're serving 
a, a dire societal need, right, in providing quality and sustainable, affordable housing for families and individuals, and in many cases, sinking a lot of rehab dollars into these projects. So it's a really interesting market. It's never been deeper or more efficient than it is today, that market, right? And, and you know, just to give a few fresh data points that support what, what we're talking about, actually, today, we're closing on a project in central Harlem, an affordable housing project with a capital A, and I believe it's around the four cap, a project-based Section 8 property. And within the past 30 to 45 days, we went into contract on a few deals in the Bronx. One is a around 500-unit complex, which was between a four and a five cap. And another one was a single elevator building above 300 units, which was also between a four and a five cap. And again, these are assets, affordable housing assets with a capital A. So it speaks to what you were talking about in, in the presentation. Yeah. And Zick, I think one of the things you mentioned, which were interesting, is the quality of assets, not just going back from the affordable, just generally speaking about the multifamily world. And there was a question from the audience about the major leases, renewals, and, and so on. Uh, our tenants are renegotiating at lower rates of terms. And one of the things I'll say to that very quickly on the office market is it's also a question of quality. I think that the office market today is an office market of two different worlds. You have the one Vanderbilt and you have the Hudson Yards and you have the World Trade that are brand new buildings that are going to receive great or receiving great activity from tenants. And you don't see many leases negotiated or renegotiated there. And in fact, the, the rents are still high there, whereas in classes B and C and Midtown buildings that are older and so on, you do see that. You do see the renegotiation of leases and so on. So I do think that quality is important in the city in pretty much every asset class. You see it also in retail. So I just wanted to answer the question here with the audience. And I wanted to jump into uh, Matt just to build on what Vic was saying and, and ask a little bit about specifically about affordable financing. If you can give us two or three anecdotes on how the world view that today. And Matt, if, if you have the, a second for that. Yeah. So thanks, Shimon. The really interesting part about what Vic said is, is, Vic, I like how you put it. It's a capital A affordable housing project, right? Typically, if you were an affordable housing borrower, your outlet was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right? Very good lenders. They do a tremendous amount of business, have very effective rates. But what we've seen over the last 18 to 24 months is a lot of banks in New York City, balance sheet lenders, come into the game and start to not only get aggressive on capital A affordable housing projects, but develop a capacity to lend on them. It's not as easy as just lending on a rent-stabilized multifamily building. A lot of times there are state and city subsidies that are tied to the buildings, and your lender needs to know how to digest that information, how to really effectively close, and then sometimes subordinate that loan behind there, right? That takes a certain specialty that maybe two years ago, a lot of banks just didn't really have a need to um, to need to do, right? But now as affordable housing has become in vogue, it's become something that the lenders need to catch up on and get up to speed to really continue to maintain their level of market share in New York City lending. Yes, thank you. And, and you know, we're going to talk to you in a minute about this is conventional lending, and we're going to talk to you more about bridge lending as well in a few minutes. But what other question we have here from the audience is about development or small and new construction developers in free market condos and apartment spaces outside of Manhattan. And that brings me to, to actually to Sean and, and talk more specifically 
about Brooklyn because I know that Sean dealt recently with some development sites that were sold and can talk to it in a pretty insightful way. Why would someone buy land today and how do they look at developing condos in Brooklyn, for example, Sean? Thanks, Shimon. The Brooklyn development market stayed pretty strong and specifically in locations where there's not a lot of land, there's not a lot of supply, and the market has really performed well historically. So uh, I think indicative of that was the first transaction we completed this year, which was the sale of 102, 106 North First Street, terrific location close to the waterfront in Williamsburg, again, where they're not making any land. We negotiated this deal sort of height of COVID beginning at the end of 2020, and we achieved a, a pretty full number at 400 bucks a buildable foot. And then to piggyback on that, even the, the smaller transactions, we're seeing a lot of demand in the Fort Greene, Clinton Hill, Park Slope, Brooklyn Heights market, where you know the product is going to be smaller condo buildings, five to 10 units. We, we sold a building in Brooklyn Heights, just off of Atlantic Avenue, probably a hundred year old building, really good bones, uh, exposed brick, high ceilings, wide wood plank floors, and that will likely be repositioned into a, a condominium or a small boutique high-end building. And then, you know, just to speak about the supply, you know, another market that we are in contract on, and this is a very ethnic market where there's just not a lot of opportunity for development is Sunset Park, and specifically the Chinese community in Sunset Park. So, we're in contract there on a 50,000 foot project as well. And I'd say, you know, despite the, the the pause in the market, you know, caused by COVID, we've really seen developers come back and come back strong. And I think that's indicative of just the fundamentals of the Brooklyn market. Yeah. And I think that you bring up some good points. When it's condominiums, you usually can pay more for the land. That helps the Brooklyn market. Um, I know that Vic is handling a few deals outside of Brooklyn. I can think about, and outside of the city, actually, at least one of them outside of the city. And I can think about two or three transactions or deals that are currently in the pipeline. Vic, you want to chime in on, on these developments? Sure, sure. You know, for the most part, these are, are, are larger developments that, you know, when it, as it relates to the ones that are in the city, I think you, you touched on it earlier. It's a lot of the discussions now are if you can thread the needle in a way to vest for the current affordable New York framework before the sunset in June of 2022. So we're in a lot of active negotiations and a lot of pragmatic ideas that are, are being presented in, in order to do that, you know, and I think there's a window now and a little bit of lead time that you can potentially do that if everything goes well. If not, to your point, it needs to be a condo developer. And the positive on that front is that I'm seeing a little bit more depth to that market than I've seen in the past few years. And, and you touched on this also, right? If you're a condo developer and you have the equity for that, it's a great opportunity for you to go out there and secure a development site where we've seen some softening in values and there's going to be a period of paralysis from the rental development side. So they might be able to take advantage of it, again, if you have that equity that's subscribed. Outside of the city, I think if it's a, a location, a suburban location that has the right infrastructure, like Metro North or Long Island Railroad, I think there's a lot of good things about it. I think it, it, it tends to revolve around the same ingredients, right? Is there a pilot that's available in that municipality? What kind of true rents can you underwrite to? What is the terrain like? What's it going to be like to get entitled? But, you know, we're seeing a lot of appetite for that. And, and it's interesting. A lot of it is from 
traditionally city-based developers that have expanded their horizon and, and are looking in these suburban locations. Yes, and it's interesting because many of them we know and many of them we've dealt with. And I wonder, Mike, maybe you can chime in here, but I wonder if there are any new sellers that are coming into the market or clients that are selling, why, why our clients are selling in this lower transaction volume environment. Maybe you can chime in on this side of the market, Mike. I don't know if you're there. Sure, sure, sure. So I think a lot of what we're seeing is demographic-based. Regardless of the market right now, we're going to be the next decade seeing baby boomers retire. And with that becomes either estate planning uh, that I think is driving a lot of transactions. It's family offices that are figuring out their next move. And if the next generation doesn't want to continue operating the types of buildings or the types of businesses that they've traditionally done, and they want to free up what, in many cases, a lot of equity and put it towards other locations or other business plans. That's something that regardless of the, the pricing environment, if the family office has a lot of equity, a nonprofit has a lot of equity in a property, they're thinking through right now how they can free that up and, and get it to work. So um, I think that's something that is going to continue to be a, a driver for sales, regardless of the environment. We're seeing that with, uh, with nonprofits, with religious organizations specifically. Many times they control vast tracts of Land. We're working on a ground lease right now in the Bronx uh, at 2450 Westchester Avenue. Um, and the, uh, the, the types of interested parties that are interested in it, you know, they're, they're looking to bring new life to a, an area that hasn't seen, you know, a whole lot of development, in this case, in, in several hundred years. And the programs that are approaching it, sometimes it's developers partnering up with nonprofits or educational institutions. It results in, in unique things that could be coming into a particular area. Another point. Um, actually about that is the owner user market right now makes this environment very difficult to paint properties in, in, in a broad brush. And what I mean by that is, you know, you look at the Bronx transactions that are taking place and you look at 80 plus dollars a buildable square foot. A lot of that right now is, is driven by charter schools that are opening up big, uh, you know, new facilities and in some cases outbidding traditional mixed income uh, developers well-capitalized. I, I imagine that some of the infrastructure uh, spending that's going to be going on right now with the Biden administration may be feeding into that or other, you know, mission-driven programs. But, you know, th there has been a very strong owner-user market in development. We've seen it in properties that we've sold and seen transact in Manhattan. Businesses, in, in some cases, paying over a thousand a foot for existing buildings in Manhattan, uh, a property that we sold on 109 East 9th Street at a very strong retail location, even though that SRO tenants above, the owner users were outbidding the investors by 10, 15%. And there were several of them. So there's a lot of things that are driving this market right now. And um, my hope is that the economic strength that we're seeing nationwide continues to propel things around here forward. Yes. And, you know, it sounds from you that capital is, is driving a lot of these things, be it debt or equity. And I know that Matt has been working with a few clients and and doing some interesting deals in Manhattan, specifically on the bridge side. Maybe, Matt, you can share it with us. Uh, the demand in Manhattan is strong for bridge lenders, et cetera, and just maybe chime in and tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Yeah. So the bridge space is a very interesting space. It's very nimble, very flexible. A lot of different types of capital are being poured into the senior debt bridge financing space. We recently just closed a $46 million transaction in Manhattan in different neighborhoods, West Village, Chelsea, Greenwich Village, Soho. 
where the sponsor required bridge financing, never really took it before, typically just recycled their bank debt every five years. The pandemic had reduced their occupancy levels to a point where they could not service their uh, maturing bank debt and were really placed in a position where the obvious outcome was to sell. They didn't want to do that. We engaged the bridge lenders in New York City um, pretty aggressively to create a bidding pool for this assignment. And we ended up closing um, at the end of June on some very aggressive terms that even, quite frankly, surprised me and my partner when we were working on this. The level of bidding was was extremely aggressive. But the uh, the flexibility, the nimbleness, it has value. Many borrowers who have never um, taken bridge debt before might be surprised as to what that can really bring you and bring your business plans. There are certain things that bridge lenders can do, like very quick executions. Many of them don't do appraisals. Many of them are lighter on due diligence requirements. Many of them offer non-recourse as a standard guarantee, as opposed to um, banks who require full recourse. So it's really an environment in financing where I would encourage many people to explore. Uh, You might get surprised by what you find. Yeah, and I know you mentioned the capital here, and I know Mike before mentioned the government spending with regards to the infrastructure, but the government also, and this is something we talked about during the presentation, is also considering taking away the 1031 tax deferred exchange, for example, and abolishing capital gains and so on and so forth. And I know that we are sensitive to that, and our clients are sensitive to that because if our client sells a building, and they need to do a 1031 today and midstream it's gone, you know, what are they going to do? And so, I don't know, I know Vic had a few nuanced deals recently relating to that, which I thought was super interesting. Vic, you want to you wanna tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, you're right. It's worked its way into contract negotiations and, and rightly so, right? It could be a, a pretty significant impact if a seller transacts and is not able to to do a 1031 replacement that they have have typically done. So in, in about two or three contract negotiations in the past few months, we've actually had to negotiate what equates to a lever for the seller to bail out of that contract if that legislation actually goes through. Right. And we've had multiple discussions with tax consultants even as part of these these transactions to to get a sense of what it might look like. And, you know, the general thought is that if the transaction happens in 2021, you're probably going to be good. Even if that legislation goes through, right, you'll probably be good because it'll start in 2022. There's also another school of thought that it could be grandfathered for contracts that are in contract heading into 2022 when that legislation could be in effect. So we've worked timeframes into closings where, you know, if it doesn't happen by the end of the year, they can get out. If 1031 doesn't go away, then that extension option still exists for the buyer. A lot of times what I think is a reasonable request from the buyer's perspective, because again, a lot of them are receptive to this because they understand how big of an impact it can be for a seller. Typically, we work in some sort of breakup fee into that contract structure so that if the seller does bail out because of this unfortunate legislation that they would be reimbursed for a certain amount, typically tying into the cost spent to date, maybe a little bit more. But that is something that is starting to emerge as a more kind of a common contract structure in light of, of proposed legislation. Yeah. And I think contract structures are, are super interesting today because there are some sellers out there that have no leverage 
want to monetize their asset, they have, let's say, a building that is vacant or, or land that's vacant, and they're not willing to meet the market. They believe that in the future, prices will go higher. So one of the things we started working on, Vic, you and I, and, and I know that you know, Sean and I are working on, and maybe Sean can, can comment on that, are structures that are different than just a pure sale. So for example, a ground lease or a joint venture where the current owner is willing to stain the deal in a big way. Sean, is that something you can chime in on? Sure. I mean, I think funny enough, there's probably a couple of drivers to this, one of which is is the exchange issue, right? Where if you're doing a joint venture and, a, and you have a developer buy in for 50% and you leave the other 50% in, you're only going to have to pay your gains on the half that you're selling. And then the other big ticket item that's on the calendar is the expiration of the 421A. So we've had some clients who own terrific real estate who may not be experienced in the residential development world. And um, you know maybe they have experience in another sector of the market, whether it be office, uh, community facility, or retail, where they can execute a business, you know, find the right partner with the right track record who has a background in executing these type of projects. And we're actually working on a couple of those now. And I think you're going to see more of that. And I think you're going to see the development um, transactional volume increase in the second half as more people look to get ready and, and get in the ground for the 421A. Yes. And the 421A is, is definitely a major issue that will push many landowners to act, whether they are going to prepare it now to be ready to the new 421A or to try to capture what exists today. Uh, I think it's just that uncertainty is not super healthy for the development market. And all of us remembering to, I think it was about 2015 or 16, we had a period of time that the market just froze before politicians could agree on what's happening. To that point, I mean, I think what politicians don't realize is when they freeze up that 421A, Manhattan continues on. Manhattan development largely goes to condo Regardless, the pricing, it's, it's very difficult for things to work out pricing-wise. But in the boroughs, that's where it really froze up. I remember especially freezing up on several Bronx transactions we had and some that we had in Queens. Um, I think you know Northwest Brooklyn, to some extent, will continue to go on because um, that's also very much a, a condo market that's got a very strong demand there. But if they don't create the clarity that's needed on revising 421A, Affordable New York, it's just going to slow down the, uh, the market, going to slow down supply. and going to work against affordability goals. We don't have much time right now, but we're stating that we're getting out of COVID. And I was wondering, at the beginning of COVID, we started seeing from a financing perspective, we started seeing some COVID reserves. Uh, I wonder if they're still there, how did they change? And what do we do now that's different than the beginning of the pandemic in order to finance and work with lenders? Yeah, so COVID reserves was definitely a structure that was kind of put into place really as a way for lenders to keep doing deals and earning revenue right as the pandemic hit and really no one knew where rent values or anything was, was going to go. And it, and it has stayed to today. But fortunately, in the spring and early summer, we saw Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac reduce or remove their COVID reserve requirements, which was a big win for borrowers. Those were some of the more strict COVID reserves specifically to the amount that they want reserved, what you can do with that reserve and how you get it released, what hurdles you have to hit. On the bank side, we've definitely seen the reserves get lessened. Typically, if a bank wanted nine or 12 months of principal interest or taxes reserved, now they're down to three or six months. 
And then in certain cases, we've been able to negotiate for the reserves to be used actively. So instead of the amount being reserved just to be held static, like in Freddie Mac's case previously, a borrower was able to use their reserve to prepay essentially principal interest and taxes, and you would be able to recuperate that amount through your cash flow because you're not double paying it. So that was really a way for these transactions that needed to happen for borrowers to really get comfortable with a structure that many will tell you, I, I've never done a COVID reserve before. Well, this is a way we can make it a little bit more easy to stomach. And we've seen that really been successful for us lately to arrange reserves like that. But hopefully in the near future, as you know, Delta continues to spread, we hope that the level of vaccination in New York City increases and lenders in New York City will continue to pull back those COVID reserves. Great. I think we're almost running out of time. So I wanted to extend one last minute for each one of you to say what you think the market is going to yield in the next six months or so. And we'll take it from there. Who wants to start? I'll jump in. I think we're going to see a lot more transactions in the smaller multifamily market. Buildings are free market or mostly free market as we're seeing institutional capital partnering with local operators. And I expect to see development transactional volume increase as people are trying to get in the ground for the 421A tax abatement. Thank you. I think we're going to see some interesting improvement in pricing for multifamily throughout the city too, as the floor is kind of set in, I think, on rents, vacancy is dropping. And right now, the cap rates that you can see in Manhattan are the highest they've been, at least as long as I've been doing this. I think as long as all, all of us have been doing this in, in many cases. And you know, the, the dynamic where New York City cap rates are higher than cap rates elsewhere around the country will drive capital here and ultimately bring them down. I think we're going to see some positive improvement with fundamental stabilizing and, and people coming back to the city. Look, I'll echo what Sean and, and Mike said. I agree with what everything that they said. I think the contract activity that you mentioned earlier, Shimon, will show up in the data in the second half of the year. And and you know, to Mike's point, I think we'll we'll see some improvement on pricing. Look, in the first half of the year for multifamily, there was only what five to six thousand units that have traded throughout the city. I think that's going to grow pretty exponentially in the second half of the year, if I had to predict it. I agree, Vic. I mean, if you look at your inventory alone, I mean, we're talking about thousands of units that are in contract, and I'm sure that others outside of Ariel have them as well. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. Matt? Yeah, I think financing was really one of the shining lights in, in, in the last year. You know, many people will say um, financing got you know worse with COVID reserves, right? But rates are still historically low, sometimes even lower than where they were at the previous low point, comparing where your index might be at any time that you're procuring financing. And a lot of borrowers should realize that even though there might be a COVID reserve, the worst case scenario is if there's no capital available at all. There's many banks lending right now. The agencies are actively lending. The CMBS lenders are actively lending. LifeCo's, bridge lenders. There's a tremendous amount of debt capital that needs to get placed. And I think going forward, that will continue to be true. And really, the ones that win are borrowers and those that are well capitalized to be engaging in acquisitions at this time. They will be pleasantly surprised with what kind of financing we can procure them these days. Excellent. So with this very, very optimistic view of our world, I want to conclude. I want to thank everybody for participating and everybody for watching. I want to remind everybody that Legal Outreach is an organization that is worth your researching and would really appreciate if 
you could vote for them and we'll send the emails uh, about the voting uh, procedure in September. Uh, that'll help tremendously and that's a no-brainer. It's a very easy thing to do. And thank you everybody and have a great summer.